Good morning. I'm Pastor Caleb. Most of you know me, but some of you online might not, and some of you out there might not. So I'm Caleb. Nice to meet you all. We're, we are uh, in the book of Matthew today, and we will begin um, at Matthew uh, chapter 22, verse 34. And hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. And one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And in the other synoptic gospels, Jesus adds strength. The prime law, the cardinal law, the the law that is above all laws is love God with our entire beings. Not just love God intellectually, not just love God when we feel good, but love God with our whole beings. Be obedient in thought, in word, in deed. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. You all today we're going to be talking about this idea of loving our neighbor because in other places in the book of Matthew, Jesus uh, talks about times when it's hard to love your neighbor. Because, you know, loving someone who's doing what you want them to do isn't that hard. Right? Like, we're all pretty good at that. Like, when someone does things that please us, it's easy to be like, man, I like that guy. But in other places in this gospel, we see Jesus talking about our enemies, those who are outside of our group. And Jesus talks about those who disappoint us and betray us. Those who are inside the group, but who are failing to live up to the standards. But this second law of loving our neighbors as ourselves, it is rooted in this first idea of loving God with our whole being. We don't just love our neighbors for the sake of, of of them, but it is part of the overflow of the love that we have for God. Our love for our neighbors comes as a result of our decision to be obedient to what God has called us to. Our decision to be obedient to loving God in the midst of both the good and the bad times. Heart, soul, mind, strength. You know, I feel like in the church, 
because I've spent my life in the church. My parents were, were, were good uh, in that they said, you know, Caleb, you're going to church unless you're bleeding out your eyeballs. Um, so I have, I have spent my life sitting under pastors who are much better than me teaching um, the way that leads to life and life eternal. And one of the things that in my time sitting under these wonderful teachers, in my time uh, being in, in Bible studies with, with faithful saints, you know, I think in general as the church, we do a pretty good job of loving God with our minds. You know, Bible study is a big part of just about every church I've known. We do an okay job of loving God with our hearts. You know, we, we, we talk about what it looks like to be in willful obedience to God. But in general, I think as, as Christians uh, here in North America, we have struggled with this question of what does it look like to love God with all our strength? To love God with our bodies. Paul writes to the Corinthian church and he says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Lord, bought at a great price? And we have rightly, in most cases, talked about uh, different forms of purity for our bodies. You know, not watching content that's going to uh, spoil our brains. Not engaging in behavior that's going to lead to rapid deterioration of our bodies or uh, a breaking of, of our insides. But we rarely talk about living in a way that maximizes health in the life of the church. We rarely talk about what it looks like to embrace the gift of our bodies and maximize this gift that we've been given in order to live the life that God has provided to us to the fullest. So we are, um, we're going to be starting a new focus group in, uh, or a new pilot group, and there are only 10 spots in this first one. 10. So if this interests you, uh, like, come talk to me about it pronto, um, because we only have so much space. We are going to be um, talking about temple maintenance. We're going to have accountability together to uh, figure out what it looks like to live lives of health. Because one of the ways that the world is different today than it was uh, at the time the Bible was written is that no one worked at desks back then. Like, there was no McDonald's back then. Like, all of the sort of public health issues that we deal with as 21st century Americans with, you know, obesity and hypertension and uh, high blood pressure and these sorts of things, like, when you're barely, uh, when you are extremely active and you're eating mostly fish and rice, 
that wasn't really something they, they dealt with. So when Paul is talking to the Corinthian church, he's talking explicitly about sexual sin. But by golly, I think if he was living with us today, he'd also say, hey, let's look at the way the rest of our lives work. How are we, how are we managing and stewarding this gift of a body that God has given us? So if you want to be a part of this uh, pilot group where we uh, look into temple maintenance and how to maximize our health and uh, do, uh, do fitness as discipleship, uh, please, please let me know. And we will be, um, we'll be working on that soon because this is, this, is, uh, this is one of the ways that we can grow closer to God because one of, one of the things that we discover is that if our bodies are, are failing us, if we abuse our bodies, it can get in the way of experiencing the fullness of God's gifts for us. So if this is something you're interested in, uh, make sure you come talk to me quickly because space is limited. Our next passage today comes from Matthew chapter 5. And Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rains on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Mean outsiders are a problem. They're a problem. Like, our enemies are a problem. These people who aren't like us, who do stuff we don't do, who uh, do stuff that makes our lives more difficult, they are a problem. And over human history, we have dealt with this problem a number of different ways, and Jesus offers a new way again today. Like Jane said, sometimes uh, our enemies, we just want to pop them once in the nose and show them we mean business. But that doesn't work. Not in the long run. Jesus calls us to a new level of dealing with enemies. But before we get to how Jesus calls us to deal with our enemies, I think we need to reimagine what is really real about the world. Because the narrative that the world gives us is that there are good people and there are evil people. And strangely enough, the good people seem to be like us and the evil people seem to be like them. Right? Like this is, this is the general narrative that we buy into in, in our tribal understanding of the world around us. 
And I would argue that this understanding of the world, that there are good people and there are evil people, has led to a difficulty in loving God for some people. Because why would God create evil people is the question that's asked. Why does God allow evil things to happen in the world around us? But the problem is that that's not the way the world really is. There aren't good people and bad people. There are just people. And people are free. If God wanted to limit freedom, the first freedom he would limit is our ability to not love him. Right? I mean, if this is the greatest commandment, love God, then if God wanted to limit our freedom, the first freedom that would be limited is the ability to choose not to love God. But God has chosen to give us freedom. And any time there is freedom, there is the risk of pain. There's the risk of harming someone else. And sometimes it's done intentionally, and most of the time it's done unintentionally. But if we are living with this narrative going on in our heads that there are good people and there are bad people, and that the good people are like me and who like the things I like, and the bad people are those who aren't like me, who don't like the things I like, then it can be really easy to start thinking in terms of who are my friends and who are my enemies. Who is good and who is bad? Who does God truly favor and who does God dislike just as much as I do? But this is not the world that Jesus describes. This is why Jesus calls those who would be his followers to love their enemies. To pray for those who persecutes you. Because it's not that they are evil people, the spawn of Satan, just rubbish to be thrown away and cast aside. No. They have been bought at the same great price as you and I. God desires to know and be known by those people who we would rather punch in the nose and cast aside. Loving enemies, loving those who make our lives hard, loving those who are who we find morally reprehensible. Bears witness to our love for God. Bears witness to this reality that we claim that the world and everything in it is God's. 
the assumption um, back during most of the period the Bible was written was that when two nations went to war, it was... Um, it was a representation of fighting going on in the heavenly realm. So for uh, the, the, the world of the ancient Near East, the assumption is that like every village, every nation has gods in this, in this heavenly realm. And when they start fighting, the tribes start fighting. The nations start fighting. And whoever wins that fight wins down here. But Jesus brings about a new narrative of the way the world really is. It's not that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is just one of many gods up there that are duking it out with the gods of Babylon and Assyria and Egypt and Jordan and whoever but that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is above all the rest. That they are all subservient to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That, that whether you grow up in Judah, or you grow up in Assyria, or you grow up in Egypt, or you grow up in Russia, which they probably didn't know about, guess what? Everyone is under the umbrella of the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Everyone is a creation of the Most High God who is loved and who God wants to be a part of the everlasting kingdom. So that people, these people who you think are your enemies, they're really your cousin. They aren't a different group. They just have a different geographical location. So Jesus calls us to love our enemies, which is still really hard. Because by golly, prejudice feels good. It does. It feels good to think that Michiganders are just out to lunch. It feels good to think that my tribe is better than their tribe. You know, I, I grew up in, in Marysville, and um, I, I assume that, that it's uh, similar here, although it's changing when you have new high schools being built. But in Marysville, we, uh, you know, our big rival was Delaware Hayes. So... You know, like those people from Delaware, <sighs> Pacers, what kind of mascot's a Pacer? <sighs> black and orange, what, who's wearing black and orange together? Take that Bengals coat off, Charlie, come on. But you know, the thing about someone who grows up in Marysville and who grows up in Delaware, they basically live the same life. Those from Delaware 
weren't my enemies now and they aren't my enemies, or they weren't my enemies then and they aren't my enemies now. And, and while that, you know, let's make fun of Delaware prejudice was real and, you know, made us feel special, it wasn't true. And this is a somewhat silly example, but it's that same base chemical reaction in our brains that we feel when we are picking on someone from a high school who is not our own, who's our rival, and that drives the prejudice that we see in the world. But God calls us to a higher standard. God calls us to a different way of living. That we don't embrace the prejudices of our tribe, but we understand that those who are outside of our tribe are part of a larger kingdom that has been established in Jesus. Our final scripture today comes from Matthew chapter 18. And Jesus writes that if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. And if they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of one or two or, two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you that if two of you agree on any, about anything they ask for, it will be given to them by my Father in heaven. For two or three agree, for where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? And Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. So Peter thought that he was uh, making quite the powerful the powerful stand by saying seven times. Because the, the standard for generosity would be three times. So Peter thinks he's already doubling it, but Jesus says, you're not even close. Because grace is something that we should have in abundance. I don't know about you. Um, loving enemies can be hard. Loving friends who have betrayed me is even harder. In the NIV, they 
they make a, a translation decision here in verse 15, where they say, if your brother and sister sins, and just leaves it general, go and point out their fault. Um, but most translations translate it, if your brother and sister sins against you. And textually, it's a better translation. I understand why the NIV does it. It makes it more universally applicable, maybe. But it doesn't help us understand why Jesus gives us this teaching. Because it's a lot easier to point out someone's faults if they're just kind of out there. It's a lot easier to say... Hey, you shouldn't steal. Then, hey, quit stealing from me. Right? We're afraid in some ways that if we, if we allow ourselves to be affected by someone's behavior, that it, it some way takes away our agency. But one of the things that Jesus understands is that most of us, when we hurt someone, we didn't do it on purpose. It happens, of course. There are times when, um, when we know full well that a decision that we're making is going to have a negative impact on someone else. But most of the time, when we hurt someone, we don't even think about the impact it'll have on them before we do what we do. We're acting out of self-interest or out of interest for someone else, and we fail to see the way it affects someone else. So Jesus calls his followers to be courageous, to instead of internalizing their hurt and let it let it fester into resentment to go out and say hey this thing that you did i doubt you meant to hurt me but you did to call out the ways that we have been hurt by others And this is one of the ways that we achieve true community, true unity, by not allowing resentment to build, by not allowing our disappointment with our friends to get in the way of loving them. And this is a completely countercultural way of living. Because the way most of us grew up and the way most of us learn to deal with people disappointing us and hurting us and, um, and, and betraying us is to hold it inside and let it boil up into resentment. Slowly by slowly, we stop feeling 
positive things about the people who were our friends because we've allowed their behavior to turn our thoughts against them. And sometimes it is... um, Sometimes we, we've, we've measured the situation properly, but usually we haven't. The vast majority of times uh, when, when I talk to people who are no longer on good terms with the other person, it's like, well, well what went wrong? Well, they did this to me. Do they know they did that to you? Well, I'm sure they do. Have you talked about it? Well, no, of course I haven't talked about it. You don't talk about these things. In the kingdom, you do. You have to. You have to. We, we must build up the courage that when the decisions we make have negative impacts on one another, to share it. And then to receive apologies well. You know, as a culture, we have, um, we have celebrated the action movie hero who gets their vengeance. But in the kingdom... We celebrate forgiveness. We celebrate the person who's able to find peace in the midst of their hurt. The person who takes the biblical call to forgive 77 times. Love for God and love for others is tightly intertwined. It's darn near impossible to love God if we hate our neighbors. And it's also darn near impossible to hate our neighbors if we love God. Actually, I'm going to revise that. It is actually impossible to love God if we hate our neighbors, and it is actually impossible to hate our neighbors if we love God. Because obedience to God requires us to live in a different way towards other people. We cannot buy into the, the, the message of the world, of the culture at large around us, that people are commodities to be bought and sold, used in order to reach our goals. but rather every person has been made in the image of God 
Every person's a person of worth. Every person is family. Every person is deserving of our love and of our forgiveness if, when they ask for it and of our generosity and kindness. And likewise, when we begin seeing not good people and evil people, but free people, it allows us to love God in a way that we can't when we are bothered by this question of why would God create an evil person? God doesn't create evil people. God creates free people. We are free. We are free to live in obedience, loving our neighbors, loving our enemies, loving those who are our friends who've disappointed us and betrayed us and hurt us. Or we are free to believe the lies of the world, to live lives of resentment and fear and anger. We're free. And because of Jesus' work on the cross, we are especially free. We are free to live lives that are not enslaved by sin and death. We are free to live lives of grace and live eternally. So let's pray. Most gracious and holy God, we thank you that you have made us free. We are free indeed. Lord, give us the eyes that you have to see every person as your beloved creation. To see every person as someone who you desire to know and to be known by. Lord, we thank you that you have made us free. That we are free to live in joyful obedience to you. that we are free to experience the fullness of the blessings that you have to offer. Lord, give us the courage to live like free people. And we'll give you the honor and the praise and the glory for you are worthy. And all God's people said, amen.